The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'm Avery Schmitz, intern at Lawfare with an episode from the Lawfare Archive. For the past two weeks, Sudan has been rocked by intense fighting between government troops and the Rapid Support Forces, or RSF. So far, reports indicate that at least 4,500 people have been killed or injured, and many more have fled the violence in the capital city. Four days ago, the United States evacuated its embassy in Khartoum. For context on Sudan's history of political turmoil, I chose an episode from the Lawfare Archive from May 13, 2020. In the episode, Scott R. Anderson sat down with Elizabeth Shackelford to discuss her book, The Descent Channel, which recounts her time as a diplomat in South Sudan during a period of turbulence between the two countries. Anderson and Shackelford cover efforts to protect human rights in the country, the United States' role in Northeastern Africa, and more. I'm Scott R. Anderson, and this is the Lawfare Podcast for May 13th, 2020. This week, I sat down with Elizabeth Shackelford, a former Foreign Service officer whose late 2017 resignation became a sign of growing discontent with the Trump administration within the diplomatic corps. We talked about her new book, The Descent Channel, out this week, which discusses her experience as a young diplomat living through a period of crisis in South Sudan and the lessons it taught her about diplomacy, human rights, and the role of the United States in the world. It's the Lawfare Podcast for May 13th. Elizabeth Shackelford on The Descent Channel. So, Elizabeth, you first came into the public eye when you resigned from the State Department in 2017, uh, in part over objections to the Trump administration's approach to a number of foreign policy issues. And so I think a lot of people, when seeing this book or picking it up, may be expecting you to spend a lot of time on those sorts of sets of issues and concerns. But the book's not really about that, uh, at least not in the majority of the book. Instead, it's really a bit of a memoir combined with some reflections about your time in the State Department and particularly centering around your service in South Sudan during the Obama administration around 2013, 2014, and a little bit before and after. For that reason, you know, since this is really a personal reflection about this sort of stuff, I kind of want to start this interview with your priors. (laughs) Uh, Give us a sense about what your life was like before you went into the State Department, before the period you spend this book describing, 
and give us a sense about what led you to pursue that career and think that the State Department might be a place that you may want to spend a chapter of your life. Sure. Uh, you know, before I joined the State Department, I was uh, I did some time in corporate law. I worked as a consultant doing legal uh, and regulatory reform in developing countries, primarily on kind of USAID projects. So I'd spent a few years doing work on kind of you know legal and institutional issues in developing countries and a lot in Africa before I decided to join the State Department. And you know, I met a lot of people while I was out, you know, traveling around the world doing development work. And um, I had a good chance and opportunity to meet a lot of people from the State Department during that time. And I felt that, you know, I was out there trying to do kind of be part of what, you know, I believe the United States was doing to kind of make the world more prosperous and um, democratic. And I was a little bit naive, I'll admit, but, you know, it was that sentiment of what America can bring to the world that really first drew me to the State Department. You know, I think you can see some of that in the early stages of the book as this kind of you know, kind of really idealistic approach to what I thought our foreign policy could be in the world. So in your book, as I mentioned, you really spend the bulk of the time talking about your experience in South Sudan, a country, a new country, still the newest country, uh, I believe, and certainly was at the time mm-hmm. that you're writing about, and that's going undergoing an incredibly challenging, but in certain ways, at least at the time, hopeful for many people, period, coming out of the period of genocide that many people think of associating with Sudan and during particularly the 2000s, and then achieving this level of independence from main Sudanese government. Give us some more background on South Sudan and what led you to apply there specifically as opposed. What is this, when we enter your historical narrative in late 2012, early 2013, what state is South Sudan in? And what do we need to know about it to understand your experience there? Well, South Sudan was, I mean, it became a country in 2011. So about the time that I first entered the the Foreign Service, I entered the Foreign Service in 2010. And I was you know, looking at well, what are the most challenging, interesting places where, you know, American diplomats can really have a concrete impact. And uh, I had a long background working in Africa as well, which is one of the reasons it was probably on my radar more than a lot of other people. But um, it was that idea of where you could go in and have a big impact. You know, a small mission. We didn't have a lot of people there. It wasn't like your kind of Iraq and Afghanistan's where you have huge missions with a lot of diplomats, everybody with a tiny piece of the puzzle. So I was, you know, I was looking for a challenge in a place where even as a you know young diplomat, I could have an impact and really see, you know, the, the fruits of what we're doing on the ground. Um, you look at South Sudan's history and the United States played a very big role in you know, helping it work its way through and emerge to becoming an independent country. And for that reason, even though it doesn't have, you know, a large strategic role for the United States in our foreign policy, it does, it has played a big, it has had an outsized role in a lot of ways. So, you know, if as somebody who's interested in Africa, which frankly is is frequently considered kind of the backwater of American foreign policy, it was the kind of place where I could go somewhere that had interest to me in you know what we're doing, what are the things that you can do in state building, you know, what are the the ways in which U.S. foreign policy can have a positive influence, and uh, you know, I I saw a lot of potential there. I also felt that if you know if we can't get it right in a small country that has a lot of attention from the U.S. Congress and the White House, I wasn't really sure you know, where we could get it right. And having 
watched not a lot of, uh, I wasn't particularly impressed watching what we were doing in the development world as I was a uh, contractor working on USAID projects. I, I wondered where we could have our greatest impact. And I kind of thought on the diplomatic approach that you could in this kind of country you could. So it just, it seemed like a, like a great opportunity with kind of the, the financial and the um, weight of focus coming from Washington that, that might mean that we can make a difference there. A lot of the politics in the book that you talk about, the South Sudanese politics, that is creating this very dynamic and in some ways, very eventually, but very dangerous political context so when, against which you're describing your work and the work of some of your colleagues and your peers, both American and South Sudanese, uh, around the embassy and elsewhere in Juba, uh, in South Sudan, really centers upon two big personalities. Uh, you have Salva Kiir, who's the president uh, of South Sudan, first president of South Sudan, uh, since his achieved independence. And then you have who, by, I think by the time of your arrival, it was his former vice president, uh, Rayek Mashar. Give us a sense of who these two gentlemen are and how their relationship had evolved both with each other and with the country of South Sudan and with the United States for that matter. They're both really fascinating characters um, and and quite different. Rayek Mashar is you know, he really kind of fills up any room he comes into. He's got a, a big character and personality. He's kind of flamboyant and well-educated. He's very good at navigating the kind of Western kind of political scene. He knows how to talk to Western donors. He's very comfortable in you know, kind of fancy clubs and in you know big cities and that type of thing. He can he seems comfortable almost anywhere that he is, at least uh, you know, back when Back when I was there, I think it might be somewhat different these days. Um, but he was a very kind of metropolitan guy, despite having had a, a long background in, uh, you know, kind of the, the the bush in the the wars that had preceded. But he was, um, you know, he was definitely controversial in the in the crowds around there because he he had ambitions, uh, no doubt. Everybody knew it. You have uh, Salva Kiir, on the other hand, who is a lot more understated in his approach. You know, he wasn't nearly as comfortable immediately with the kind of political role that came along with the job. He seemed much more comfortable in the military role that he had had filled before. Uh, but he'd also been very much the the second before uh, South Sudan gave its independence uh, to John Garang, who was the kind of founding father of the movement. So it was a little, with a little bit of surprise that Salva Kiir came to the fore so, so quickly. It was a natural one because he was the second in, in command to John Garang when John Garang died in a helicopter crash. But um, you know, you had a, a natural need to have an alliance between Salva Kiir as the kind of head of the movement at that time and the lead Dinka character, and the and, you know, Riyak Mashar, who was heading up the what had been a split in the movement in the the 1990s, and then ahead of you know independence later. So it was a necessary you know, kind of marriage of convenience to bring them together ahead of independence, but it was never a very comfortable one for, for either. So you mentioned the Dinka people, and of course, the newer people also play a big part of those identities, ethnic identities. How does that overlay with the politics in South Sudan at this time period and between these two major figures in the independence movement? Well, they're the two largest ethnic groups in in the country. And you know, for that reason, they, they play a very big part in the conflict, but um, it's less, in my mind and experience, it's less driven by the ethnic divide than 
the ethnic divide has been manipulated time and time again to be utilized by different players in order to kind of throw their weight around and exert power and authority. And you saw in the lead up to the war that broke out in 2013, you saw a real kind of consolidation of of power within the you know, kind of small, influential, hardline Dinka community uh, of Dinka leadership around Salva Kiir, because that was, you know, both a way to kind of reinforce your your core supporters, but also a way to use those ethnic alliances in order to kind of create a sense of who the enemies were. And you definitely saw this leading up to the conflict breaking out in December of 2013. Um, yeah, but it was used on both sides. I mean, very rapidly after the war broke out. I mean, it it broke out with um, you know, kind of skirmishes between ethnic groups within the military. But that was certainly exacerbated, you know, in the early days of the war by you know attacks that that were very much ethnically driven against the newer in Juba. So it's, I mean, ethnicity has been a rallying cry in that country in that part of the world for a very long time. Um, it's something that's easily uh, used as any part of humanity to try and other another group in order to kind of solidify your own power and control. And, uh, you know, I think that's, that's human nature. And it's certainly something that I mean, we see it in our country today, you know, you find some way to differentiate yourself from others, and you use that as a tool to bolster your support in your, in your base. And I think that that's, you know, you've certainly seen that happening over and over in South Sudan. Now that said, right after the war broke out, the opposition was, you know, was not uniformly new air. The opposition was a wide range, including, you know, Dinka politicians who did not align with uh, the president in the immediate aftermath of fighting breaking out. But over time, you know, as things became more militarized um, and as you know, kind of militias were, were brought together in kind of local community groups that were ethnically based, uh, the war you know, rapidly became more and more ethnically based itself. And unfortunately, that's, you know, that's still kind of how you, you see a lot of it today. So in December 2013, as you mentioned, that's really when the situation in Juba heats up. And you're there as a junior foreign service officer working in a consular role and a political role on human rights issues. And you begin to see these spikes in violence happening on the streets. You begin to see a breakdown in stability in the situation and the needs of a lot of Americans living in Juba that you describe in really vivid detail, these efforts to help address in areas where the embassy could, also in other number of circumstances where they couldn't, or at least didn't feel like they could, assist various types of Americans and dual nationals around Juba dealing with this sudden spike in violence uh, just before Christmas in, in 2013. You know, from your perspective inside the embassy, what did you see about that response that you thought was going right? And then what did you see that you thought was going wrong? It was a really interesting time to be a part of a mission like that, particularly because it was so small and I and I had kind of an outsized role for a junior officer. I was very impressed by our ability to pull together you know, significant resources to be able to respond and the you know, lengths to which we were willing to go as a government to help Americans in all, you know, in, in all sorts of different situations. It's been in stark contrast, you know, frankly, to a lot of what I've seen coming out of out of Washington during the crisis that we're currently going through with coronavirus and you know, tens of thousands of Americans who've been stranded overseas. I will say I have massive sympathy with my colleagues who are out on the ground in different places trying to 
run evacuations and bring people home because I know personally how hard that can be. Uh, but what I've seen, what I saw back in 2013 and 2014 uh, was just a level of focus and attention and determination out of leadership in Washington to do whatever it took to help Americans in a way that I feel like I haven't seen the same coming you know, during this crisis that we're living in right now. And I think that you know you can have a lot of determination and expertise on the ground, uh, but if you don't have the backing that you know, we had back then, I think it can be really hard to provide the assistance that, that we want to for American citizens. Now that's on the American citizen services side, which was what I was doing mostly day to day. I would say you know, the, the other side to all of this, and I wore two hats, as you mentioned, uh, when I was working in the embassy, you know, the other side is the political response. And you know what is our what is our diplomatic and political response to the political issues that we're looking at there, and that's you know to the conflict. And I you know I saw us pull out a lot of stops trying to bring together the you know the two top warring parties at the time, and um, it's it's really it's impressive to see how creative people can get trying to think of ways to to reach people because you know in a crisis like that you are speaking to you know it's a large crisis that deals with, um, you know, some huge consequences, but at the same time, you know, if you're trying to speak to an individual like Salva Kiir or an individual like Riyak Mashar, you know, what do you, what do you do to try and reach them? And watching people like, uh, you know, Secretary Kerry and Ambassador Page try and find ways to reach these men who had control over the situation was really um, an education for me. And when I think about how hard they worked to address those issues and how they leaned on every relationship and all of the knowledge that they had of these characters. You know, I just remember today that when you're, when you're dealing with an administration that doesn't really value those relationships and doesn't really value the role that diplomacy plays in these scenarios, I do feel as though we're, you know, functioning out there in the world, very hamstrung um, when, you know, it's an area that we should have strength. Well, that leads well into my next question. Uh, you spend good parts of the book diverging from your main kind of biographic narrative to engage in reflections about aspects of diplomacy, about U.S. foreign policy, about foreign assistance um, that are interesting narratives, obviously coming from the perspective of a practitioner and somebody who has read in on these topics and obviously thought about them a fair amount and informed by your personal experience as well, I have no doubt. So for this 2013 scenario you found yourself in, in hindsight, what do you think were the contributors to both the right and the wrong responses the United States was pursuing in regards to that conflict and its aftermath? And in particular, you know, how did that experience shape your evaluation and interpretation about what is right and wrong with the broader practice of American diplomacy? I have a tremendous amount of hope and faith in the potential that we have in our foreign policy. But, uh, you know, my overall view is that frequently we are hindered by a foreign policy that's driven by inertia and short-term interests and targets. And I saw this in the lead up to the war breaking out in South Sudan. And as a, as a junior officer at the time, you know, I, I frequently questioned, you know, my own views of this because I thought, yeah, well, you know, they're, they're professionals here. They know what they're doing. They have a lot more experience than I do. But time and time again, I would see us kind of back off from opportunities when I felt that, you know, we could have, you know, made an example of the bad behavior that we were seeing. You know, it, the, the war didn't just spontaneously erupt overnight. There was 
um, an, a gradual increase over time of autocratic behavior from uh, the president of South Sudan and those around him. And you know, we saw these things happening. They concerned our leadership in Washington and and in the embassy. We were frustrated by what we saw as uh, you know, kind of unstable and dangerous moves by the president and those around him. And you know, and yet we kind of kept giving them the benefit of the doubt. And this had been building up for a long time, really since pre-independence uh, for South Sudan. And so, you know, my thought in retrospect is that, you know, what would have been different had we held firmer to you know, principles of human rights and the rule of law at a far earlier stage than when the war started? By the time the war started, I, you know, by the time that conflict began in December 2013, I really don't believe there was anything that the United States government could have done to stop it. I do think that there was a lot we could have done to mitigate uh, the conflicts leading up to it. I think that we could have made, you know, imposed some consequences in terms of the benefits that we were giving to the government, um, you know, at earlier stages and leveraged more in order to push for more accountability for you know, incredible violence that was happening against the civilians well before the war started. You know, we saw this in uh, Jonglei State where there was a lot of conflict, you know, the couple of years before the war began. And we saw this in Juba with uh, security forces that were receiving you know, training and support from the U.S. government, and yet were still you know, behaving very poorly towards the civilians that they were supposed to serve. And my question has always been, why didn't we make you know, human rights and rule of law a, a bigger priority at the time? And I think one of the challenges is that we often see the U.S. government look to stability as being reflected in supporting the government that is in place, to whatever extent we have to. And that's what I felt like we, we saw in South Sudan. And so then after the war began, it took a couple of years before the US government really began hounding Selva Kir and the government in place for its, you know, for its very significant and, and leading role in perpetuating the war. You know, there were things that we could have pushed for and that people did, but which the United States government ultimately pulled back from, like, you know, an arms embargo early on and, you know, harsher sanctions earlier on and statements making accusations against, you know, against the government for things that it did, as opposed to just general statements of both sides need to stop fighting, uh, which I found the kind of generic way that we tended to respond when anything bad would happen. Uh, so I, I I viewed this early on. I, I saw this before the war started, and I, I wondered why we weren't doing more. And it's really been reinforced for me in the in the you know months and years since that you know what might have been different. Would it have stopped the violence? No. Would it have reduced it? Certainly, an arms embargo would have. Uh, would it have given us more leverage against the government? You know, I I think so. But even if it wouldn't, I think that there would have been a lot of value to us not reaffirming and validating you know bad actors that are in place this is an issue with south sudan and you know it's an issue with many countries around the world uh, saudi arabia is a wonderful example of that um, you know places where we disapprove of a very extreme acts by the government and yet for whatever reason we continue to downplay those issues you know you you do in your book repeatedly come back to this theme about there being a bit of a poverty of human rights in 
U.S. foreign policy priority setting, uh, if you think that's a fair way to describe it. Essentially, the human rights keeps losing out in comparison to economic policy initiatives and priorities to defense policy priorities, and essentially lacks a degree of cohesion behind it. But there's always a bit of a tension in human rights policy and priority setting for powers like the United States. There is a question of, to the extent that there is a a criticism, I think an increasingly prevalent criticism about the United States trying to be use its heft to direct too much overseas, whether through military intervention or through economic sanctions or through other measures. Yet human rights, in a way, that is the underlying endeavor. It is to try and facilitate change in state behavior and using tools and mechanisms to do so in ways that many foreign governments find objectionable and uh, to which they routinely object. Um, you know, human rights has always been a, a flashpoint, at least for the last 30 or 40 years in diplomacy, particularly in the developing world and post-conflict areas um, between the United States and other powers and local powers, often, um, to generalize a bit. What is the the prescription for striking that right balance? How do you think about the use of tools to compel certain types of behavior in this context, and how does that relate to uh, you know other missions? Whether it is uh, you know military intervention in some cases, whether it is pressuring for certain sorts of economic policies, is it the greater moral certitude essentially of human rights uh, that allows the use of certain types of coercive measures or at least strong strongly incentivizing measures, or is there? a more fundamental balance that has to be struck about how we use those sorts of tools. This is this is why I find South Sudan such an emblematic example. I mean you're absolutely right. I mean we we do have to balance uh, all of our different national security interests at the end of the day. And I'm I'm realistic about that. I fully understand. But in a place like South Sudan, we were the biggest donors in that country. We poured hundreds of millions of dollars into it. And there is no real benefit, you know, that we are getting back in return for that. Uh, No direct kind of transactional benefit that you can think of. The challenge for me isn't why didn't we make some huge stands on on human rights issues? The challenge for me is why did we pull our punches repeatedly on very, very low level, you know, kind of low hanging fruit? And we did it repeatedly. Um, You know, human rights in South Sudan, I'm not saying... We need to demand that the country, uh, you know, adopts a constitution that you know fulfills every uh, every right that we think that it needs to. But I do think that we shouldn't be pouring money into, uh, you know, assistance and training for security forces in countries that are not really doing any of our bidding, which they aren't there. The security forces there aren't, you know, combating terrorists that are targeting the United States. Uh, but we're pouring money into a, a security system that's harming its own people. And there are arguments to be said, you know, well, if you don't do the training, then surely, you know, you can't expect them to improve. But at a certain point, you know, a six-week training in human rights isn't going to change the fact that, you know, your South Sudanese military is slaughtering thousands of civilians in their in their own country. Uh, so for me, the issue with why South Sudan really made it such a stark example was because I did not see what the trade-off was for. The trade-off appeared to mostly be that we had decided to back this horse. And it's a great example of how, you know, inertia propels a lot of our foreign policy and makes it difficult for us to change course at a time 
when you know the signs are all pointing to the fact that we should be reassessing our relationship with with different uh, friends and allies. And uh, that's why, I mean, yes, the Saudi Arabia example is going to be a lot more challenging. But if we're not even willing to stand up to the likes of Salva Kiir in South Sudan when his government and his security forces are doing very blatantly uh, wrong things against their own people, I'm really not sure at which you know difficult decisions uh, we're going to be able to make the better long-term choice for. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have My Life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, 
but they'll put it back and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. So another major character in your sort of narrative is one that we never meet in person, but they're referenced a number of times. And that's the former National Security Advisor, Susan Rice, uh, who you note that you have an understanding or belief, at least, if not in, in direct knowledge in every case, was exercising a lot of influence behind U.S. policy towards South Sudan in many cases, in a direction contrary to what was being advised to people on the ground, uh, as you understood it. Give us a little sense about what your understanding, your, your best guess is about how National Security Advisor Rice might have seen the situation on the ground and what led to those sorts of policy stances that I think you're describing, that desire to stick by these actors the United States has these existing relationships with. To push you a little harder on that, I'd be curious to hear what your what the most generous take on that policy would be. You know, what's the best argument for it before then hearing your critique of that, if we could? I, mean, I, I do think that there is a logical argument for that approach. Um, and I believe that Ambassador Rice's record, uh, you know, particularly on the African continent, does reflect a belief that when you have strong partnerships uh, with people who are who are in charge in difficult, unstable places, there is an argument to be made that reinforcing those strong players in unstable places can help to reinforce stability. My view on that is that when you're reinforcing autocrats uh, who are strong arming their way to positions of strength, that is a short term stability, but not a long term one, because it risks having a population that is you know, very unequal and very, very much at, at risk and susceptible to you know, state and non-state violence. And eventually, those situations do become unsustainable, particularly in places where you're dealing with, uh, you know, a lot of other exacerbating factors like climate change and you know, drought and um, widespread weapons, cattle raiding, that type of thing. So, I mean, I, I went into all of this, you know, first in South Sudan, very humbly. I did not have an assumption that I that I knew a whole lot. And it, as you read the book, you have probably 
you could probably see that development of my kind of understanding it and growing confidence and and better understanding what was going on. But I, I spent a long time questioning, you know, why my views on, you know, issues like how much we could, you know, trust the likes of Salva Kiir or how much better or worse it would be to have to reinforce that stability, you know, uh, what are the long-term factors there? But I think that we've got a pretty good argument now that that it hasn't worked very effectively. And that was my argument when I was in South Sudan at the time, and that of many other people who were kind of long time, much longer times in South Sudan than I was, was that at a certain point, you know, supporting one person in one direction isn't leading to a more stable country. What alternatives do you look to? You know, at what point do you change course? And I felt very much that what was happening in South Sudan before and after the war began, and as it dragged into its second, third, fourth year, I felt as though our, our real issue was that we, we were not able to look back and reassess. Were we right? Were we wrong? Were we right at the beginning? But now here's a good time that we should reassess and maybe change course if it no longer makes sense. I'm not going to you know, claim that there isn't some merit in kind of sticking with the people that you know for some time. But at a certain point, you have to be willing to say, I know this, you know, this was somebody who came to power, you know, with our support, with our blessing. But at a certain point, you know, they can cross the line and maybe they have moved outside that space of being you know, really legitimate in that position anymore. And I feel like questioning the legitimacy, even after a very long time, comes very hard to, frankly, to, to many governments. Because that question is, if you're able to question the legitimacy of someone there and you get back to this American theory, which is we don't want anybody questioning us and what we're doing. And we generally disapprove of that. So I think that's part of it as well as, you know, not wanting to throw doubt on other, on other state leaders. Now, really this sort of engagement with a national security advisor's rice's position and disputes between the white house, uh, and an embassy Juba and other elements of the state department really is in some ways the most, poignant critique of your of this book. It's one of the points that you really hit time and again. Um, and it's one that I, I want to push on a little bit to get a sense of what your, your sense of the cause of that is. Is the concern here, in your view or in your experience at least, one where you, one of personalities in a way, of personal histories, because Nesquid Advisor Rice, you know, had this relationship and other people, no doubt, around her who also worked in the White House might have had these relationships, these views, these beliefs, and just happened to find themselves in a position where they could act on them and exercise outside influence? Or is there an institutional characteristic or factor behind this? Uh, one of the criticisms many people did make of the Obama administration's foreign policy and security decision-making apparatus was an increased centralization around the National Security Council and increased involvement in the National Security Council at times to the expense of local diplomats or professional diplomats and the State Department and other agencies. Which of those two narratives in your mind fits with the South Sudan case or does neither of them? Are they both off the mark? They both fit with the South Sudan case very, very, very clearly. Um, I mean, personalities are, are often the driving factor. You know, it gets back to what I was saying about you know, the role of diplomacy is so effective when you have long-term relationships in there because all of these people that you're dealing with are personalities. You look at Ambassador Rice and you look at some of the other people involved in this and they, their personalities, they're people who have 
opinions that they've built over time about a lot of the players involved in this. So you can't discount that. And of course, Ambassador Rice is a very strong personality. Uh, but you know, I I don't want to get a, away from you know, as you've correctly assessed, the institutional problem at play. And it was a problem during the Obama administration, but it's been a problem for a long time before that as well. Um, I think that you've seen the increasing centralization in the the National Security Council and the White House happening gradually on an upward trajectory for the last couple of decades, if not longer, probably longer. But it has continued to increase. And that's also a natural factor with people wanting to control things close to home. But we lose something there. I felt very much when we were in South Sudan, you know, I was you know, very much a, a new player to that area and geography, but we had others in the embassy who were longtime watchers and engaged in South Sudan, you know, in particular Ambassador Page, uh, who was our ambassador to South, first ambassador to South Sudan. But I felt like the kind of opinions and directions of what was uh, being pushed from the field, from Juba and from our embassy, was definitely discounted back in Washington when compared to the interest of, you know, kind of centralized both in the White House and, and also to an extent in the Special Envoy's office in the State Department, but primarily from the White House. I do think that you lose a lot. I mean, why do we have embassies and ambassadors with relationships and, you know, political officers, you know, hoping it on the streets of these places, if you're not going to reflect and shift your foreign policy based on you know what we're learning on the ground. There's a reason we have embassies in these places, and the you know I mean the intelligence, the connectivity that you have, you know what's going on on a level that people can't possibly know in Washington uh, because they aren't seeing it and living it. So I do think that structurally we have a huge challenge with both the kind of short-term view that you get from having a lot of political appointees and political actors uh, driving things, uh, but simply the you know, level to which we we largely dismiss our field diplomats in in kind of the the most serious foreign policy challenges that we face. You know, this is one of the reasons I one of the reasons that I'd like to get this book out there is because I think that it's a good way to contribute to the conversation in terms of you know if we we do have a you know a presumptive nominee from the Democratic Party and the you know Vice President Biden and if you know are we going to return to a very centralized foreign policy that um, you know, is largely concentrated out of, out of the White House, or are we going to find a better way to utilize, you know, all of the other resources that we have at play on the civilian side of our foreign policy? And I think that we we leave a lot of value behind if we don't really start giving more cred, essentially, to to what we're learning in the field. Often, it feels like you're sending information back to just a black box in Washington when you're reporting back. Um, and that can be really frustrating, particularly when you see decisions being made that you feel like if the information we were sending back from the field were really valued, you feel like they would be making different decisions back in Washington. The title of your book, Descent Channel, comes from a particular experience that you describe in some detail after leaving Embassy Juba, returning to Washington, D.C. in a different assignment, then drafting a dissent channel cable, uh, a type of communication that goes directly to the secretary's office, outlining a complaint about any particular policy or position of the State Department that State Department employees are able to send. And it's a a long sort of hallowed State Department tradition um, to have that in place, and one that's gotten a lot of attention in the last few years. Um, And as you note initially, 
due to a descent channel cable over Syria that was leaked and got a fair amount of public attention. Um, then one over the travel ban as well after the Trump administration came into office. That received a great deal of attention. But you kind of approach it from an interesting perspective in the book. You both use the descent channel to lodge very targeted complaints about U.S. policy towards South Sudan and receive a pretty substantive response and hearing on those, at least, uh, or at least it seemed to read that way uh, in terms of actually engaging with the special envoy's office and then receiving, as you were entitled under State Department regulations, a, a written response. But then you also have an interesting criticism of some of the later uses of the dissent channel. And then on top of that, you, of course, end the book uh, and ended your time at the State Department with another major form of dissent. Um, which is a choice to resign uh, and resign with a letter that makes targeted criticisms and dissents about U.S. policy. Out of curiosity, as somebody who's really lived through and thought about the role that dissent plays for civil servants, uh, and particularly in the State Department, tell us what you think about that. I mean, how should civil servants think about their role and the role that dissent can play in it both through the official dissent channel and through the less official dissent channels that are available to them, like resignation. The dissent cable process that I went through, it was so formative for me. And it, it did leave me at the end of it, just really wondering, well, how do you push for change in an institution that is so driven by you know, kind of inertia and status quo, which the State Department is. I mean, you ask anybody in the federal government, and the State Department is definitely a kind of a state institution in which you know, kind of promotions happen slowly and change happens slowly. And our IT system is like the most ancient one around. <clears throat> These are all kind of aspects of the State Department that, you know, in some ways there are some benefits to having that kind of stability. But we have to have ways to be able to kind of voice and have considered, you know, contradictions to the paths that we're on in foreign policy. One of my biggest concerns with our foreign policy is that it is driven by inertia more than really considered thought over the best next move. And I think that having a better culture, a more accepting culture of dissent and kind of consideration would really benefit our foreign policy tremendously. Uh, right now, in terms of, you know, kind of what would be, what would my advice be for you know, civil servants and foreign service officers who are on the inside and see things that are, you know, that they, they believe to be wrong or dangerous or, you know, improper under our you know, constitution and rules and regulations and principles, it's really hard to know. And that's part of what the book gets to is that the dissent process in the State Department is broken. And, you know, one of the things that has gotten even worse in the past couple of years is just the general form of, of oversight is also broken. Uh, you know, inspector generals, the types of offices and institutions that you're supposed to be able to go to to report uh, you have wrongdoing or misdirection are all being very much undermined right now. The lesson that I'd like people to take from this is that it's not going to be enough to just go back to what we had before the current era that we're in, because even if you weren't actively seeing, you know, inspector generals getting fired or pushed out or whistleblowers getting outed, it still was not an environment that uh, really was open to uh, dissenting opinions and and different opinions. You know, you moved up in the ranks by being, by playing well with others largely, um, and that was not always. Uh, you weren't always seen that way if you if you pushed back. And I think that that's a real challenge, and it's going to be a challenge moving forward for our civilian foreign policy. 
But in terms of what people can do today, um, you know, I did have my criticisms at the time with the leaks of different dissent cables to the press. And I, I go through this kind of my thinking of it in the book, which was that on the one hand, I was I was displeased with it because I knew that the only way that something like the Descent Channel would would what the way it was supposed to function was that it was supposed to be able to draw attention, you know, within the building, within you know, maintaining your you know loyalty to the to the cause and the goals of the State Department and our institution, but by still being given the opportunity to voice those opinions and have them heard out. At the same time, when I went through that process myself. I do believe that there were a number of people in the State Department who were supportive of me voicing my concerns, but there was certainly no real interest in considering them. You know, these weren't just my concerns. We had a whole team of us who had worked together in South Sudan who came together to put forward this dissent cable. And, uh, you know, it was views that were at that point not not terribly controversial even, um, but they were certainly counter to what our status quo position had been in in South Sudan. And it was a disappointing experience because I felt that as though we gave we gave some very concrete suggestions for things that seemed like logical next steps. And yet we were given what was essentially just kind of a, a formed response of, but this is what we're doing and nothing else will work. And if you can't be heard effectively from within, then what are your options? Your options are quitting, leaking information to the press, continuing to do your reporting and try and force change by the, the, the sheer volume of what you're pushing on a different subject. You know, but in, in my experience, none of those things really worked to compel changes in policies that weren't effective. And you can go back as far as you know, the Vietnam War. We had a lot of uh, dissent in the State Department at the time. It did nothing to affect change in our policy. And it did lead to a lot of people resigning at the time as well. I mean, that's the, the era in which the Descent Channel was born, effectively to find a way to let people feel as though they've done as much as they can, and then they can move on. For me, that wasn't, it wasn't that it wasn't enough at the time. I was very frustrated afterwards. But at the same time, I felt like there was still a lot of promise in the State Department and an opportunity to continue trying to push change from the inside. And that's why I stayed after that experience, even though it was quite disappointing. And I was very frustrated with our with our policy and what I thought uh, was contributing to the ongoing violence in South Sudan. But it was when we had made it in some way into the Trump administration when I felt as though, you know, not only were you no longer being heard, but you were considered a troublemaker and, and actively attacked for it in many cases, uh, if you chose to push back against against the administration's views. And at that point, you know, it, it just felt as though, while I felt there was slow little bits of hope that you could change the, the organization from the inside, even if I wasn't seeing a lot of progress at the time, once you had, you know, at the time it was Rex Tillerson and, and, and now Secretary Pompeo under the Trump administration, I feel as though I don't know what I would do if I were still on the inside. I'm, I'm glad some people are staying so that they can do the really important work of the State Department. But I also feel like everybody needs to assess if they're able to continue doing their job without inadvertently pushing some dangerous policies. Well, that brings us nicely to our last question, which really relates to kind of the future and particularly the future of the State Department. Um, right now, we're in a situation where 
hiring freezes at the State Department have been lifted and eased. So there are people going in, but hiring numbers are low. Uh, I know that there's hopes of replenishing some of the numbers and getting uh, the staffing at the State Department uh, up again, particularly in a Democratic administration. In your book, actually, I, I should note, you know, I really think one of the ways that things that it does excellently, better than many other books I've read, is really capture the experience of a Foreign Service officer working in this sort of environment, not just the outward experience, the tasks, the responsibilities that come with that sort of role, but also the internal experience about both the personal and professional questions and quandaries that working in a difficult policy environment, often a difficult personal environment, really thrusts upon you. And in that way, uh, it's definitely going to be on my short list of books that I recommend to people who are considering a career in the Foreign Service. With that in mind, what advice do you give to people who approach you about them considering joining the Foreign Service or entering into government, perhaps in another avenue related to, to foreign policy and national security? Is it an avenue that you think some people should best leave untraveled? Uh, and how do you tell whether it's a role or the sort of job that, that individuals might find satisfying or not based on your experience? You know, I want this book to inspire young people to go into you know, this career and, and similar ones and careers of public service. I, I do. What I also wanted them to take with them when they when they go into the Foreign Service or into other jobs in the government is a a sense and a knowledge that just because they are you know new and younger and and told that this is just how things are, I want people who join to maintain that sense of questioning what we've always done, you know, that sense that you can push back on what the decisions are, because I believe that those are the types of qualities that are going to help us refine and have a much better foreign policy into the future. I would like the State Department to overcome that sense of kind of inertia that we have and and the hierarchy that we have. The hierarchy is inevitable in an organization, but I want people to go in there and to be the ones who are saying, is this right? Have you read about this? Should we be doing something different because of the things that I've seen in my job, in the front lines, in the field, in these different places. You know, I want to inspire people who are going to be young political officers, uh, you know, around the world to make sure that they are honest and and thorough with the jobs that they're doing to sending in information back to Washington and that they work their way up through their careers, you know, making sure that they do that and that they have that opportunity and that initiative to push back when they feel it's necessary. Right now, you know, I get this question a lot. And I think that, you know, just speaking really kind of logistically, if someone is considering something like the Foreign Service now and you apply, it takes a while to get in, then you have some training, then you get to your first tour, which is probably consular. You know, I think that now is a great time to go into it because, you know, the, the hope is that we have a change in administration that is, you know, one that, that does want to reinforce our diplomatic role in the world and our, our civilian foreign policy seat at the table. And if that does happen in the next year, then you know, hopefully what we have moving forward is a bit of a restart and an opportunity to really build up our foreign policy better than it was before. And for you know, those young people who are considering this type of career, getting on the ground now is a wonderful time to do it. And you start to learn the trade. And by the time you get to a, a mid-level position, we're hopefully in a, in a place where 
you can do the good work that you joined to, to serve for. Uh, so I think it's a great time for people to consider this career. I mean, if November goes a different way, I might have a different answer for people next year. But um, I do think that, you know, we need people who are really passionate about the role that America can play in the world to, to be out there and part of it. And in a lot of ways, it's a great time to join because the State Department has been gutted and people are going to have a lot of opportunities that they might not have had you know, five years ago in a different State Department coming in. People who might not have qualified to get in uh, before because it was more competitive with more people. You know, maybe wonderful diplomats in waiting who, who might not have had the fluent Mandarin to give them the extra points to, to get past uh, the testing period. Maybe now you're going to have a better chance. So I say go for it. And, and just keep in mind once you are in that you know, it is up to each and every one of us in these positions to make sure that what we do in our jobs does not inadvertently push you know, bad or dangerous policies that are counter to the reason that we came to serve. Unfortunately, we'll have to leave our conversation there. But Elizabeth Shackelford, author of The Descent Channel, thank you so much for joining us here today on the Lawfare Podcast. Thank you for having me. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. If you haven't, please take a moment to share the podcast on Facebook or Twitter and give us a rating wherever you found us. The podcast is edited by Jen Pacha Howell, and our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.